What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and welcome to this week of Burn It All Down. It may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it is the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University. I'll be leading the show today, and I'm joined by the amazing Jessica Luther, author of Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape in Austin, Texas, and Lindsay Gibbs, the wordsmith at Think Progress, who is in Washington, D.C. On this week's show, we'll review the dumpster fire that is the NCAA, delve deeply into USA Gymnastics, and we also have an interview between Jessica and Leisha Clarendon, who talked about playing for Team USA in the FIBA Women's World Cup, the WNBA offseason, and about periods and sports. Okay, before we get started, let's talk about what's going on in the very recent past of sports history here. Linz, there was a fight in the NBA. Is that right? There's a fight and then we have baseball. What's going on with the fight with the fight in the NBA here? I'm so mad because I need West Coast basketball not to be interesting so I can sleep, you know? (laughs) And now, like, LeBron and the Misfits are on the Lakers, and I'm just never going to be able to sleep again. So apparently last night, like, this is the second NBA game of the season for the Lakers and the Houston Rockets. And it ended up with Chris Paul, and I believe it was uh, Rajon Rondo, and then Brandon Ingram ran in there, all throwing punches at each other. And then there are allegations that Rondo was actually spitting on Chris Paul. Oh, my gosh. But nobody can, you know... The Lakers are denying that that happened. Anyways, yeah. So I just, look, I'm not going to lie. I love it when things get a little rowdy every once in a while. It's very entertaining. I mean, this is just hysterical. I just, this is amazing. And honestly, I am going to have to invest in some stronger coffee, I think is the only answer. (laughs) Did you see any spitting, though? What is, how do you weigh in on the spitting controversy? I didn't see any spitting, no, but I also... I believe it's possible that Rondo did that. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, Like, it's 100% possible that this happened yeah but two of my favorite things were about this were okay i have three favorite things very quickly first of all it was lebron james immediately going to his best friend chris paul and pulling him away as opposed to helping his lakers teammates (laughs) number two was the way that brandon ingram like ran in there and was like i got this i got this and try you know just like it had nothing to do with him but he was gonna like take care of things and as jamel hill wrote on twitter like he probably earned the respect of his teammates last night like he was he was going to help out but number three was James Harden just literally standing there (laughs) (laughs) I believe that too (laughs) so it it was all wonderful I mean you know we don't want this to happen all the time but every once in a while I mean the second game it's just it's too good it's all the personalities coming out in that kind of a moment I mean, you just broke it down so well. Like, this is how all the personalities come to the fore when stuff like this happens. And we shouldn't move on before mentioning, I'm sorry, Amir is not with us on this particular recording, but baseball, are you watching? Not yet, but I will be. This is my normal. (laughs) This is my normal baseball watching. I'm finally ready to watch baseball now that we've made it to the World Series. I know Amira must be thrilled. I'm sure she was tweeting about it. I didn't actually check. But her Red Sox are in with against the Dodgers, which former guest of the show, Rhea Butcher, that's their favorite team, I believe. Or at least they root very hard for the Dodgers. So it should be good as far as i can tell from my like skimming of baseball reading it's people think it will be a very good world series so i'll probably tune in now 
Baseball is a lot of investment. It is. We should just say it's a big investment. I'm afraid to get too emotionally attached to baseball because of just the time, just the time consumption. Like like last night, I I usually watch much more of the playoffs than I have this year. And but one of my colleagues, Melanie Schmitz, hey Mel, is a big Brewers fan. And so Aww. I was watching the game seven and and because of her, like I you know, I don't really have a preference between the Dodgers or the Brewers, but because of her, I was rooting for the Brewers. And then I was like, why am I doing this to myself? It is very obvious that they are not gonna score any more runs. They are being horrible tonight. And yet I couldn't turn away because what if? And that's, you know, but you know who I'm excited that's in the World Series again is Yasiel Puig. More Puig is Yeah, I agree with that. We all agree with that. It's not a surprise that Burn It All Down is monitoring very closely what happens in the NCAA. And Jessica, would you like to give us a rundown of the most recent... I don't know whether to call them scandals or whether to say it's systemic problems or just everyday, everyday dealings. Like everyday, all day. Yeah. (laughs) So last week, lawyers gave closing arguments in what you've probably heard of as the NCAA college basketball corruption trial. A lot of the news around the trial has been about Adidas employees paying players under the table in violation of the NCAA's so-called amateurism rules and coaches working with those employees to get recruits. But as Sports Illustrated's Michael McCann laid out, this trial isn't technically about those rules. Instead, quote, the Justice Department contends that payoffs to recruits defraud the universities that enroll these recruits. Oh, those poor universities. The payoff, McCann says, instantly makes a recruit and eventually the player ineligible under NCAA rules. So the school and and in, in theory, the school doesn't know about this and ends up giving kids scholarships despite the fact that they're technically ineligible, quote, under false and fraudulent pretenses. McCann writes that there's one more part of the DOJ's argument, quote, the Justice Department insists that the conspirators interfered with targeted schools' ability to, quote, control their assets, a term of art that includes distribution of finite scholarships and financial aid packages. Had the colleges not been deceived in enrolling ineligible recruits, they could have directed these assets to recruits who are both in appearance and in actuality complying with NCAA rules. It's like the DOJ doesn't know anything about the NCAA. Okay, so let's be clear about this case. Universities, namely Louisville and Kansas, according to the DOJ, are the victims here. They're the ones that need protection from the federal government against an underhanded company. Louisville, to be clear, is the highest grossing team in college basketball, generating something like $45 million in annual revenue over the past several years. And so to no one's surprise, the defense's argument is that the universities are not, in fact, victims in this system, and they know all about how this works. Or as Dan Wetzel put it in a tweet this week, sport is so corrupt that there is no corruption. So lots of schools, basketball programs have been implicated in some way, including Duke, Kansas, LSU, Michigan State, Oregon, and NC State, among others. But if you'll indulge me just a bit more, I've been reading Pamela Grundy's book called Learning to Win, which is about sports and education in North Carolina in the 20th century. It's a history book. And she mentions a 1929 report, so going way back, by the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching. At that point, 1929, the NCAA was, I don't know, a couple decades old, though organized collegiate sports were older than that. So according to Grundy, this 1929 report, quote, offered a wide-ranging critique of university athletics, raising questions about the academic performance of athletes, the effects of competition on relationships between schools, the ethics of athletic perquisites such as training tables, the profits derived from game receipts, and in particular, the practice of financial aid for athletes, which it termed, quote, the deepest shadow that darkens American college and school athletics. So in short, (laughs) these problems are old and have long been acknowledged and criticized. It always feels like we are inching closer to the end of amateurism, the amateurism lie that the NCAA is built upon, but it's hard to imagine what the final nail in that coffin is going to be. So we know so much about how terrible and false amateurism is. We know the NCAA is a corrupt and bad organization, and yet it's still really hard for me to see how or when this change will come. And there's so much more to be said about this. I mean, 
So, Lindsay, I know that you recently wrote about the NCAA's response or I guess non-response to Jordan McNair's death, which if you listen to the program, you know, that's the player at Maryland who collapsed during practice earlier this year, later died from heat stroke. And in that piece, you talked about, you know, the fact that they're not paying attention to McNair, but are still like caring about amateurism. Like this is the thing that they're so focused on. Will you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think really to understand how egregious this all is, you have to go back to why the NCAA first formed. And it stemmed out of a encouragement from President Theodore Roosevelt back in 1905. So in 1905, 18 college and amateur players died during football games. Uh, this time, sport was a really different, the, the sport was very different. There weren't many forward passes or anything like that, but it was still football. And there was a lot of concern over the safety, which might sound familiar. So Theodore Roosevelt, wanting to kind of preserve the sport, got a lot of the heads of football from these colleges like Harvard and other, you know, big name colleges, brought them all together and were essentially like, you need to fix this. There need to be some sort of safety guidelines in place. So in 1906, the NCAA was founded, quote, this is from the NCAA's website. So this isn't even like from... This isn't even hidden. Quote, to protect young people from the da- dangerous and exploitative athletic practices of the time. <laughs> oh, the irony. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. So if you look just at what has happened in the last month, okay, let's just look at this last month. We've had all these reports coming out about what happened to Jordan McNair in Maryland. What we know is that his death from heat stroke was entirely preventable. Um, If Maryland had followed its emergency action plan, which it is supposed to legally be required to have had its like player, its coaches and administrative staff practice and be ready to execute. If it had followed protocols for when a player is showing signs of heat stroke, what do you do? You put them in the ice bath. Instead, when Jordan McNair started showing signs of heat stroke, the training coach kept pushing him harder. They then ignored a lot of the signs. It took him, excuse me, let me let me find this exact quote because I just think it's from this. So from the onset of McNair's symptoms until the call to 911, uh, stop for a minute. I didn't mention this happened during a conditioning program in May. <laughs> so, you know, the peak of football season then, definitely when you need to be pushing players to the limit. So from the onset of McNair's symptoms until the call to 911, one hour and seven minutes elapsed. And from the onset of his symptoms to the departure in the ambulance en route to the hospital was one hour and 39 minutes. And a lot of that delay was due to the fact that there was construction going on at Maryland at the time and nobody was out there. Part of the emergency action plan is to have someone out there to greet the ambulance and guide them directly to where the player in distress is. Because, you know, these football fields and training facilities, they're not like like easy to find, you know, nobody did that. Nobody did that. It's simple things like this that just nobody did. And because of that, McNair, by the time he got to the hospital, it was too late. He was in a coma. He was in a coma for two weeks and he died. And we know that heat stroke, if you get immediately into an ice bath, you have a very high chance of actually surviving. So, you know, to me, when I look at this, it just seems very clearly that Maryland was in violation of the rules, that Maryland, that there were steps, not all deaths, not all accidents that happen in football are preventable, not all, you know, people could have undisclosed medical conditions. There's certainly some nuance to the conversation that has to, you know, take place around medical conditions. But in this case, from the reports that Maryland itself has done, (laughs) we know that they took every step. Yet, is there been any discussion of NCAA sanctions. Has there been any discussion of giving the the football team the death penalty for a year? So making sure, which I shouldn't have even said that because it's the, the term itself is not appropriate in this in this context, but you know, of 
canceling the Maryland football team for just the season, giving its football players exemptions so that they can transfer immediately and figure out what's going on and, you know, that they don't lose a year of eligibility or anything. So so try not to punish these pick players too much. Just cancel the program for a year so that you can figure out what's going on in a program where somebody died. No. I haven't seen any widespread calls of that. I think there was one dead spin piece mentioning it. However, what we do have is, you know, more stuff coming out about Louisville in this trial about, you know, players getting paid by Adidas and possibly assistant coaches on Louisville knowing about it. And so there are all these calls for Louisville basketball to get the death penalty and to be be canceled for a year. And I just want to scream, like, where are our priorities? How does this have any like how in the world is there complete silence from the NCAA and from those who hold the NCAA accountable about a program where a player literally died due to missteps and yet when we find out a player was making money under the table and the whole system benefited from it off with their heads so I have to ask you both are journalists that cover this all the time, and I have tremendous respect for your work. I am an academic who's actually on athletic committees who liaison to the NCAA. And I have to ask, Lynn, you gave us this amazing history, you know, and Jessica too, 1929, 1906. What was the NCAA for? It was for the protection of players to avoid, I think you said, exploitative practices. So like... Really, though, I have a. It sounds insincere, but it's not. What is the NCAA good for now? And I want to, my knee jerk is absolutely nothing. That's my response. But I have to ask you both I mean, do you see any purpose other than kind of putting some legitimacy onto the shamaturism? Or is there some purpose that the NCAA is actually serving besides that? Jess, do you want to start this? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't really I'm sorry, know. I know it's a big question, like, yeah, I, but I, I, I just we've talked about this a lot, and I feel like we're at the point where we're pretty good at understanding it. Yeah, no, I I often ask myself like, what is the NCAA for? I mean, certainly they're doing organizational work around like you know, I'm I don't know as far as the upper level of administration of the NCAA, it clearly appears that they're the point of them is to make money to make sure that the NCAA continues to just rake it in. And I don't have like a better answer than that. Lindsay. Okay, so the way they are structured right now is because it is all about making money, like you're not seeing the benefits that it should. There are ways to organize these television contracts and organize, you know, these conferences without the NCAA's oversight. But I do want to, so I talked with economist Andy Schwartz, who is a great expert and resource on all things NCAA corruption. He just wrote a great piece for Deadspin about how the NCAA is gaslighting all of us that I really recommend everyone read. But I talked with him last week about these trials and everything going on. And I really loved what he said. He said, there's a world in which the NCAA takes all the expenses they put into making sure athletes don't get discounts on tattoos (laughs) And put it instead into making sure athletes are being educated and that when they are playing sports, the schools are using best practices for health and safety. (laughs) So in other words, if the NCAA is an oversight that is making sure that students are, that educations are being prioritized somehow within the system and that schools are following the best best health and safety practices, that would be super useful to have a governing body oversight into all of those things. But as it is now, the NCAA shows time and time again, as we saw with, look, I'm a big Tar Heel fan, but as we saw with their decision that the, that UNC didn't, didn't have any sanctions, you know, for the fraud that they had with their classes, as we see with them looking the other way in Jordan McNair, they don't care about those things. And instead, all they want to make sure is that athletes aren't getting paid. Yeah, the Duke trials right now, or not Duke trials, I mean, the NCAA trials that are going on in Manhattan have highlighted for me the way in which the NCAA looks a lot like FIFA. And just because it's like the same, you know, courthouse, the same sorts of 
arguments being made and the same smoke and mirrors that ends up that what's really behind it is just more smoke and mirrors. And that FIFA for me covers up for clubs and for conferences and the NCAA for me covers up for university programs. Its purpose is to is to sort of be the go between, you know, be, between sort of university programs and the public, and say well, this is what we do and this is why we do it, and it gets thrown up to faculty too to not get involved. Well, these are NCAA regulations. Well, no one really knows what that is. I have a handbook from the NCAA. It's like six hundred pages long, and I'm not real clear. And yeah, like, and it I feels a like a book of suggestions <laughs> yes. more than anything. Like, totally. we suggest you do these things. <laughs> Absolutely. Exactly. These are recommendations or these are, you know, targets or these are the ideas, but not real clear what the power behind those suggestions are. So it's it's pretty interesting to see this trial kind of unfold. And I was reading about Duke and, you know, it's sort of relationship. And one of the things that shocked me is that there were FBI wiretaps so, like, what is the FBI doing? <laughs> Isn't it busy? Well, the here? FBI is the one bringing this case. Right. Yeah. I mean, just like, like the it's ridiculous. Just like for me, just like FIFA. And you think to yourself, like, but but why is the FBI so interested in this stuff? It's really kind of fascinating to see how the last three years, all of a sudden, it's become a DOJ issue, right? Sports and now the doping, FIFA, and now this. And it's really interesting to ask, you know, what are they getting out of that? Linz, did you want to jump in on something here? Yeah, I do want to say, though, that one clear distinction, though, between at least at FIFA, they were going after top FIFA brass. Here, they're not even going after the NCAA. This has nothing to do with the NCAA. They're going after a few rogue, I mean, quote unquote, rogue players. You know what I mean? A few, an agent and a, you know, an Adidas executive and these stars. Like the NCAA is not actually on trial. However, the NCAA actually was on trial. Last month in California, there was a 10-day bench trial in the federal case Alston versus NCAA, which is a class action on behalf of former men's and women's college players against the NCAA and the 11 major conferences. And these players are essentially arguing that limiting compensation for NCAA student-athletes to just scholarships is a violation of federal antitrust law. But the NCAA is arguing that getting rid of these scholarship caps would ruin college sports and if players can earn more than just a scholarship, that it's going to ruin college sports. Now, the huge, there's a lot of things to bang your head against the wall for. Because it's a bench trial, we won't know. The judge has a while. There's probably going to be another hearing, and then we won't hear from the judge. Probably until January is the guesses that I have gotten. However, what's incredibly infuriating is In New York right now, you have a trial that is going on that where it is out in the open. Every, both parties are agreeing that essentially everyone breaks these NCAA rules. Do you know what I mean? Like, and yet interest in college sports is higher than it's ever been. And yet in this other completely separate trial in California, you're having NCAA argue that if the athletes get more than a scholarship and if people know about it, it's going to ruin college sports. So it's just like you want to pull your hair out. (laughs) Yeah, just as someone who teaches too, I don't know which of my students are on scholarships. Like they're all the same. It wouldn't change my relationship with them. And thus, I don't think it would change their whole college experience. So whose experience is it changing? Is it changing like an audience that's invested in thinking that they're poor? And they don't do this for money or something, you know, this sort of ideal that. Yes. Yeah. That's out, literally it. It's they, out they there? Say that's that if, literally their argument. But yeah, that, that and that's amateurism. Yeah. And, and yeah. then it's like, but, but <laughs> we think that that's silly. I think grown ass people think that's silly. If you break it down like that, you know, if you, if you confront people like that, and then the NCAA is just making money. Right. Like if you watch March Madness in a year, the NCAA puts out commercials that are literally like amateurism is everything. Like, we're like, everything will be ruined if amateurism doesn't exist anymore. One thing I did want to mention right at the end here is that there are what we're seeing now are some alternative things happening around how the NCAA functions. There's a lot to say about these G League, the NBA G League contracts. They're going to start paying what was a $125,000 yearly contracts to certain uh, G League 
uh, players. And there's a lot to say there about like investment in which basketball players. Um, but the fact that like that's an you can go around sort of the NCAA system and get and get paid. And then, you know, on the football side, which we haven't talked too much about football this time around, but Ohio State, the defensive end, I want to say Nick Bosa. I'm hoping, I hope I'm saying his name correctly. He's a junior. He might go number one in the NFL draft next year. He got injured and he decided to leave school and focus on his body and get himself ready for the NFL draft. And, you know, that's sort of that's like a more extreme version of what we've seen with these players who are deciding not to play in bowl games anymore because they're protecting their bodies for the next round. And so you're seeing players and other outside leagues offering different possible, you know, these are the things that maybe will make a difference, that these are the things that seem like they are actually putting money pressure on this organization. And I don't know, outside of something like that, whatever is going to change with the NCAA. So I'm always paying attention to those kind of developments. and And I hope we see more of it. This week, Jessica Luther sat down with Leisha Clarendon to catch up on the FIBA World Cup and periods and the WNBA. Well, I am very excited today because I am joined by Leisha Clarendon. She's a guard now for the Connecticut Sun, formerly of the Atlanta Dream, and a 2017 WNBA All-Star, and she recently played on the U.S. national team at the FIBA World Cup. And... What did you guys, you, you got, do you get gold medals, Leisha? We did, yeah, won the gold. Won the gold, all right. So let's start there. Let's start with the FIBA World Cup. It was in Tenerife, correct, mm-hmm. Spain? Yes. That looked beautiful. Did you have time to see stuff? Yeah, we got time to see a little bit. I mean, mostly though, it's, you're really just practicing and playing a, a ton of games. So we had one or two days where we went and explored a little bit by the water and got in the ocean and saw some black sand beaches. So that was really cool. Nice. What is your favorite memory from the competition? I think sharing the whole experience with my wife is she was there and, um, you know, Mm. people like her, your person that just like pours into you so much and they really see what goes on behind the scenes and in the off season and practicing and the emotional labor, you know, the tears and and all of that. And so to share that with her, it was just really special to see like how far we've come and that like we did it together because it's a dream that I have that she's always supported. That's lovely. How are you feeling about the sport of women's basketball internationally at this point? It seems like it's really just getting so much better than we've ever seen it. (laughs) It was really good. It was really, really physical. So that's why I feel like Maybe the rumor was like, oh, European basketball is not as tough or, you know, they do Euro steps and stuff, but we were getting like beat up. And I don't know if it's because, you know, US is a target on our back, but these teams were really physical um, and the game was, you know, just as fast as the WNBA, but I felt like even more physical or maybe the rest let the physicality go a little more. And so that was really interesting. And I haven't played overseas since my rookie year, so I can't speak to, you know, the overseas play outside of that, but it seemed like the world is getting a lot better. And some of the veteran players definitely mentioned that as well. Like these are their best national teams. You know, Belgium was one of the really good teams we played as well in one of their first times at the World Cup. So Nigeria, I think, had their first ever FIBA wins. I think they had two or three of them. And so you're really starting to see teams. Um, And the talent overall in women's basketball is just getting better and better every year. So it's really cool to see um, not only in our league, but on a global level as well. Yeah. So you just mentioned that in your offseason, you actually don't go overseas. So what do you do in your offseason? How do you keep up, stay fit, that kind of thing? I work out a ton. I take the first kind of month or so off and just kind of rest, recover, like literally eat whatever I want. I've totally been drinking wine like every other (laughs) night, you know, things you just don't do during the season to really just take that mental break and um, not burn out. And then, you know, I just get to go through like a full kind of off season and really get better at things and on the court and off the court. So physically, I was a lot faster coming into this season I think it really showed in my defense and took a lot of pride in kind of being known as more of a defender this year Mm -hmm. and then um, you get to work on some things in terms of basketball as well so whatever you want to add to your game and continue to get good at ball screens and so it just really gives you that time to to get better and so I have it all set up kind of month by month and the phases that I progress in leading up to the season and then then I um, broadcast with the Pac-12 Network and this will be my third year doing that 
So when you're training in the off season, are you by yourself? It depends on the, where I'm at and what year it is. <laughs> so most of the time I am pretty much alone. Okay. I'm not with a teammate because I'm in California and you know everyone goes overseas or to their hometowns. And so most of the time I'm on my own purely with lifting and conditioning. Last year I was in Chico with my wife. We lived up there for you know the off season. Whole Body Fitness is one of the groups I work with and it's a gym. And so I got to work out with them and a group of guys, which is really nice because okay. the years before that I was totally on my own, just like going down. That's hard. That's yeah. hard to be on yeah. your own. Oh yeah. yeah. Like pushing yourself and just not having anyone to compete against. You know, I definitely have the competitiveness against myself, but it's just different when you're looking to your right and your left and you're chasing someone in a workout or they're chasing you. So you know, you have to go faster than when it's just like you by yourself and having that coach there kind of being like, all right, like five, four, three, like with your rest and recovery, he's like, all right, back in the plank. And you're like cussing him out under your breath. Because you're yeah. like, no. <laughs> so uh, that was really nice. And then actually shout out to my wife again. Like she would work out with me some in the off season. So that was nice. It's a big challenge in our off seasons when players do decide to stay is what's in place to help them be successful. And I think if they're not you know, involved in their college programs or in the same city or area, then what resources do they have? You're kind of left on your own to figure it out. That's always so interesting to me because going overseas, of course, is wear and tear on the body in a whole different way. So they're keeping up, but then they're really wearing themselves down. And then you have the other side of it, which is your experience in the off season. But now I want to get to like the reason that I initially uh, contacted you to talk to you. You in August, it was announced that you are going to be or you are now a spokesperson for Diva Cup. Will you first explain what Diva Cup is for anyone listening that doesn't know? Oh, yes. I'm, this is like the one of my favorite <laughs> sponsorships ever. It's something I'm like really uber excitedly passionate about. And so Diva Cup is a menstrual product. It's an alternative to tampons or pads. And it's just a silicone kind of small cup. And when I say cut, people are like, what? Does, it, does the blood <laughs> drop in there? I don't get you know, I have to explain it to them. So it's just a silicone um, cup that you insert and you can wear it all day, I think up to 12 hours. And so you have to change it less often. And it's just an amazing menstrual product that I'm always encouraging people to, you know, give it a try. How did you find out about it? One of my friends when I was, lived in Indiana had been using it for a while. So she was telling me about it one day on a casual conversation. And this was back, I think my rookie season in 2013. And I was like, Oh, cool. Like, I'll give it a shot. And I remember I didn't want to try it in the season because I was a little nervous the first time. Like, what if it leaks? You know, we were white. And so yeah. I tried it in the off season. So going into 2014, I started wearing it and I tried it in the off season. And I remember the first time I went to the bathroom, I was working for the Players Tribune at the time, I was doing an internship. Mm -hmm. So I went to the bathroom. And then I walked out and I was just like, Oh my God, I feel like I have a secret. Like this like liberation that no one knows about. Like I totally just used the bathroom and it was great. And I was on my period and I didn't have to worry about like carrying a tampon in the bathroom and you know, the string getting wet and just all those things that we do with as women. And I was just like, that was easy. I just like peed like normal and like moved on with my life. And then having used it on the court, it was like a whole nother level of awesomeness. And I just find this absolutely fascinating because it is this one... I mean, we obviously have stigma around talking about our periods just in general, but sport is such an interesting thing because the, I mean, part of the ideal is that we're obsessing over bodies, right? And my very short-lived basketball career was seventh and eighth grade. But when I was thinking, when I was preparing to talk to you about this, I was thinking about the first real conversation that I ever had with a bunch of girls about periods was at a basketball practice. I remember it viscerally, Leisha, because that was when I found out that there are girls who don't have six day long periods. <laughs> I was like, what right, is this magic right. body that you have? But that right. was like the first real substantial discussion that I ever had was with my basketball team. And so I just think it's interesting. I mean, is this something that you as an athlete have ended up like, I assume you talk to your teammates about this and like how you guys deal with this part of your body. You have to have conversations, right? Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, uh, well, like when I think I said when I first posted, like, if you've ever been in the locker room with me, like, you know how excited I am about partnering with Diva Cup now because I've talked about it on every team I've been on in every locker room <laughs> and with multiple teammates and actually was able to give my Connecticut teammates all a Diva Cup uh, right after I signed with Diva. So that was pretty cool and having the discussion and 
just really funny. You just get an array of things and you get throughout the teams I've played on, Indiana, Atlanta, and Connecticut, you get such a mixed review of how people respond to periods. And I think it's definitely, you know, microcosm for a larger society. You see people who are like totally grossed out about their periods and people who are like interested in the Diva Cub and people who like don't want to talk about it and people, you know, in the locker rooms, like you said, we put our, our bodies are literally like our jobs. And so, right, you're always mm-hmm. you're changing in locker rooms, you're naked around each other. And like, it's like inevitable, like a lot of teams actually end up syncing up. That's like a funny thing everyone <laughs> talks about. Like there'll be like seven people in their period. And, and you know, there's times you're just like, oh, I need a tampon or I need something from your teammates because like you're around each other all the time. Or, you know, one of you is cramping and you're like, all right, I know I'm practicing. It's going to be tough. Like we got your back. And so a ton of conversations about it. And I've tried to take an educational approach with a lot of my teammates and even breaking down the stigma. You know, some people are like, it's so gross. And why? It's a cup and you pour it out. And I'm like, it's gross as compared to shoving a bleached piece of like toilet paper in your vagina, essentially. Like it's just breaking down that stigma and education around it. And for me, you know, just wanting people to understand and know and to just really realize like how awesome this product is. I think it's cool that I've used it for so long. I've actually like been hunting Diva Cup down to work with them. And, like, <laughs> let me write a blog, you know, for since I used it in Indiana, I was I was trying to partner with them for the last few years because it really does change how you perform on the court it's it's just so liberating is the word I always use I do think it matters that you're an athlete like I think there's another level to it like the idea that you do it while you're active and it works right like for some reason it's like it's really road tested (laughs) right diving on the floor jumping squatting being in a defensive stance like all of the movements that we do throughout our day and once you know how to use it like it doesn't leak and that's the issue that so many athletes have and I know that I've had problems like who's played sport for years and never had their tampon leak right Right. and you're sweating and yeah you're wearing if you have a heavy flow or god forbid you're wearing white that day you're like oh my god like i had had someone in camp i don't even remember who it was during usa was like oh my god we're wearing white and i like i'm on my period we're all like oh no like we'll look out for you (laughs) sorry time you know get up and go in the game we're like okay she's good we got your back (laughs) (laughs) what was the response to the announcement that you're going to work with diva cup did you have one from people from the outside yeah or really positive i think people want to have more of the conversations it's just the stigma and the silence and then even the shame for a lot of women we've all i think experienced that like hiding the tampon to go to the bathroom Mm-hmm. moment of like literally this is something that happens to a large percentage of the population like why am I hiding my tampon being afraid to go to the bathroom so people will know I really want to break the stigma around that and I think people will be really open to engaging in those conversations so I got a lot of positive feedback thank you so much I'm going to put a link to Diva Cup in the show notes so if anyone is interested in checking out out more and just thank you so much for your time Leisha and thanks for talking about this with me it's such There is so much stigma. And I just think the more we talk about it, you just start to wear that down. So thank you. Exactly. Thanks for having me. Lindsay, it was... (laughs) I just say that and you laugh. (laughs) Well, there's just so I know what's coming. I know what's coming. (laughs) But our listeners might not. So listeners, what's coming is I'm going to ask Lindsay about gymnastics. And (laughs) Lindsay, give us an update. USA Gymnastics right now is making the NCAA look competent and (laughs) (laughs) not corrupt. (laughs) Like, that is how bad things have gotten in the NCAA. So the last time we picked up with the NCAA, I believe, was when Carrie Perry resigned. So there was this very tumultuous uh, thing about six weeks ago when they – announced a new elite development coordinator. That elite development coordinator, however, had publicly defended Larry Nasser even after 60 Nasser survivors had come forward talking about abuse and after he had already been indicted on counts of sexual assault. So while this was back in 2016, it was well after the case had, you know, gained a lot of legs. And the same elite de- development coordinator had on Facebook attacked not attacked, but um, shamed survivors such as Allie Raceman for speaking up against the conditions of the Caroli Ranch, saying that, you know, everything that she was there and her gymnasts were fine and everything was fine. After that, just astonishing stuff. She lasted that 
Mary Lee Tracy was her name. That elite development coordinator lasted for three to four days on the job before resigning. At which point after that, Carrie Perry, who had been the USA Gymnastics president for nine months, was basically forced to resign after a just disastrous nine months at the helm. At the end of last week, we had USA Gymnastics, or I guess two weeks ago by the time you guys are listening to this, USA Gymnastics announced that it had a new interim seat president and CEO, Mary Bono, who her name should sound familiar. She's a former Republican congresswoman from California, and I believe was uh, married to Sonny Bono. So, you know, (laughs) what a world. But this immediately drew ire because just a month ago, Mary Bono had tweeted and something against Colin Kaepernick. And it was basically a tweet where she blacked out her own Nikes. And this is right after, you know, Nike had sponsored Colin Kaepernick. So Simone Biles called her out for that. And then there was a lot of talk about the fact that she had worked for the same law firm that had defended USA Gymnastics and helped them cover up Larry Nassar's sexual abuse. She wasn't directly involved with the case, but she did work with the law firm. So she then, after just four days on the job, was forced to resign. And we'll get into her quote-unquote apology resignation letter in a bit. It's just a treat, everyone. Three days after all this, maybe two days. Honestly, I don't have a great sense of time right now. Um, (laughs) Fair. (laughs) We found out that US, former USA Gymnastics president, Steve Penny, so he was the president during most of the sexual abuse, the biggest sexual abuse scandals. He was forced to resign in, I believe, April of 2017, though he did get a more than a $1 million severance. And, and so he- And they said it was uh, because he was ill, right? No, no, no. You're thinking of the USOC president. Oh, um, okay. USOC. Boss. All right. Yeah. It's very confusing. Sorry. Go no, ahead. Steve Penny was just because of like Nasser stuff. Okay. Um, that makes me feel a little better, I guess. Okay. Keep going. No, you should not feel any better. <laughs> so he was forced to resign in September 2017. So then after that, they didn't have that Carrie Perry from December 2017 through August of this year. And then they had Mary Bono for four days. So just making sure everyone's up to date, um, because I know this is hard to follow. We found out that Steve Penny had been arrested and detained after a (laughs) manhunt because he, the Texas grand jury had indicted him for ordering documents removed from the Caroli Ranch about Larry Nassar and having them delivered to the Indianapolis headquarters of USA Gymnastics. And those documents still have not been found. So this was obstructing an investigation into Larry Nassar. So he's facing two to 10 years in prison. And that's where we are. There's a lot more to get into, but I'd like to throw it to you guys. How does this make you feel? (laughs) Lindsay, can I ask a question about the Penny stuff? So what is your read? So why did he do this? Was this like, because this is pretty... The point when he does this, it's pretty late in the game, right? So, like, there's no question at that point that, like, Nasser was a very bad guy and harmed a lot of people. So is this about him protecting the brand of USA Gymnastics? Like, there's something in those documents that makes USAG look bad? Yeah, that's what I am assuming, that there is something in there that has to – that deals with what USA Gymnastics knew and when they – And these are medical documents. Yeah, I think it's this personnel file, you know, type thing, like from the Caroli Ranch. So it seems it's not jumping to rash conclusions to believe that there is something in those documents that would be damning to USA Gymnastics, to Steve Penny, to the Carolis, to someone who he is trying to protect. And he also like cozied up to the FBI, right? He was like oh, yeah, the that's investigator. Yeah, he was like promising him that he could have a job, a top level job at the USOC or USAG or I mean, he was making a lot of questionable choices in defense of the brand. And I think you have said this repeatedly on this show, Lindsay, and I think about it a lot with this issue that like these people who are in charge of, we should be very clear, mainly a lot of girls. I mean, we, we talk about young women and women a lot, but like a lot of these people that were harmed were girls that they're just choosing brand over everything else. Literally, they are choosing, I mean, their own, they're trying to save themselves, but also just the fucking brand of the sport. 
And it is, I when I read the Steve Penny stuff, I was really angry <laughs> for a couple hours. Like I really had to work through it because I just, what's even the point at that point in the process of doing this? Like just take the L. You just take the L at that point. Like you have done bad things and you, I just have so many feelings, but I don't even know how to process it. I mean, it just, on some level, like I end up laughing and I feel bad that that's my reaction, but it just, how is this real life? How, how is this like another wrinkle in this? I mean, I have a, I have a hard time keeping track of all the different things coming off of, of, from around Larry Nassar, all of the people who tried to protect him and themselves and the sport over and above all of these girls. It just chafes so much. It is absolutely shocking what people will do for their own personal interest. I mean, I, I think you're right, Jess. It, at the end, it's it's just about greed. There's no other way to explain it. I mean, there's no possible because even the brand, what is the brand? I you don't know? know. That's the thing. <laughs> what, what is, is the it they're protecting? Um, can we talk for a minute about the players' reactions to this? I mean, I saw Simone Biles' tweet. Right, yeah, uh, and Ali Ra- Raceman has been about Bono. That's but that's but Simone Biles is still very active, right? Ali, mm-hmm. right? Not, and so right. that seemed brave to me. Yeah, I know. It feels like Simone Biles is over it. Yeah, <laughs> well, Simone Biles at this point finally. Devora Myers, who does great work on all of this, she knows more about USA Gymnastics than anyone on Deadspin. You know, she wrote about how you know Simone Biles is really finding her voice and finding her power. I mean, remember in January when all of the victim impact statements were being read in court, and all this was coming out about the Caroli Ranch. The USA Gymnastics still had a relationship with the Caroli Ranch. It was Simone Biles tweeting that she did not want to come back and have to train for this Olympics at the same location where she was sexually abused. That tweet is what got the Crowley Ranch shut down, not Carey Perry or USA Gymnastics. They did that only because of what Simone Biles tweeted and Carey Perry later in many of these, you know, committee hearings that I attended tried to take credit for that as something that USA Gymnastics was proactively doing when the only reason they did this was Simone Biles. So Simone Biles is just being incredible. Allie Raceman really went after the the relationship with the law firm. And, you know, I wrote this week, it's, it's pretty much it's just time to decertify USA Gymnastics. It's tough when you're looking at the US Olympic Committee, who is incredibly flawed organization themselves and trying to get them to be the arbiter of any morality. But they have the power to say enough is enough and to decertify USA Gymnastics and to kind of figure out a way for this organization to start from scratch. And there are ways you can do this without completely ruining the careers of athletes. The USA, you know, there can be some makeshift situations. But at this point, the people in charge of USA Gymnastics do not need to be in charge and they don't know how to make decisions that are proper. We've seen that just the past six weeks. Jess? Yeah, I just want to say one more thing because I think we should just keep saying this over and over again, especially as members of the media. This should be the number one sports story. Like when this stuff keeps happening, I am like, how is this not running as like the number one thing on the top of every fucking sports page everywhere on sports center and part of it is that i don't trust that the anchors at sports center are the people who know like how to handle this like they're not you just mentioned devora and Lindsay. you have done amazing work we have nancy armor and rachel axon at usa today but like I can basically name for you the people who can report this stuff out like sports media is not prepared to handle this and to put it at the level that it deserves to be at. And of course, I think that this in part has to do with the fact that these are young girls who are victimized in a sport that most people only care about every four years. So they this is kind of like on the edge of what they're paying attention to, which is why all the stuff in at Michigan State around issues with football and basketball disappeared very quickly and aren't part of this conversation when we talk about all this stuff, because people don't really want to acknowledge the stuff that they when they care about it. It's just so frustrating that this is not always a major story. 
by sheer number alone of victims. But then again, all of the implications here, Michigan State, USOC, USA Gymnastics, like these are major, major organizations who have failed. And even Lindsay writing, you wrote that great piece about how Nike has done little at all to force a hand here when they have so much power. Like there are so many major places where this intersects with sports and the fact that the sports media in general overall has really let us down on how seriously they have taken this. Again, I want to, you know, shout out to the people, of course, the local reporters, I want to say, in Michigan who have really like carried this water, the people of the Indianapolis Star. But overall, I'm really just constantly disappointed in how sports media has, has taken, not taken this up. I absolutely agree. I couldn't agree more. Linz? Yeah, I want to, you know, Jess, you were talking about how you can't keep any of this straight because <laughs> it's so much. And when I was writing about Steve Penny earlier this week, I realized how much I had forgotten about things that I had reported on <laughs> about things that he did. And it's just, you know, I think it's just worth a little bit of a review before we move on. So in 2015 is when USA Gymnastics was first notified of allegations against Nasser by Allie Raisman's coach. Allie Raisman and Maggie Nichols were the first two. They then did a five-week internal investigation. This is when Steve Penny was, a, was the head. They did a five-week internal investigation. They didn't believe Raisman and Nichols until a third uh, victim, who I believe was Michaela Maroney, came forward. Only after then did they report him to the FBI. The FBI then waited about a year to really start its investigation in earnest. And when you look at things like right now, it's the Texas law enforcement who are really actually doing the most work in this case because the Crowley Ranch is in Texas. We don't give the Texas law enforcement credit for much, <laughs> but they're the fact that they're subpoena, you know, that they're issuing a warrant or, uh, you know, getting a search warrant. That's the word I'm using for working for, for the Crowley Ranch, right? Like the FBI should have done that in 2015. You know, like, what's happening here? Why are we waiting? And on top of that, so They're Steve busy Penny investigating itself, the NCAA lens. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. And FIFA. <laughs> I mean, I, I could talk for a while about how much the FBI has dropped the ball in this case. And I, I think it, that doesn't get nearly enough attention. But just talking about Steve Penny itself, you know, we have the fact that Allie Raisman and other survivors have specifically said that Penny lied to them and told them not to speak publicly about Nasser's abuse in 2015 and 2016 because of the ongoing FBI investigation, even though for much of that time, the FBI investigation had never begun and the FBI had not ever requested such silence. That was all Penny trying to protect the brand. Raisman told ESPN, Penny was trying to control every part of the investigation. The biggest priority was to make sure I kept quiet so that they had a good Olympics. Penny also was directly responsible for signing a $1.25 million non-disclosure agreement with Michaela Maroney in order to keep her silent about Nasser's abuse. And we must remember, this goes well beyond Nasser. 2016, the Indy Star investigation revealed that at least 368 gymnasts in the past 20 years had been allegedly abused at the hands of coaches. And USA and Penny would often hide reports of abuse in his desk because they had these stupid rules that only the victim or their parent could directly report it to USA Gymnastics. It couldn't be a hearsay. So when it was someone else, he would just hide the report and not take it any further. So, I mean, burn pile Steve Penny forever. And I'm so glad he's finally seeing some justice. And every once in a while, we just have to go back and review all the awfulness. Now it's time for everybody's favorite segment, the burn pile, where we throw all the things that we've hated this week in sports on a giant incinerator and <laughs> cathartically burn them. Jessica, do you want to start? Yeah, so my burn pile is from the category of this isn't surprising at all, but glad we have statistics <laughs> to prove it. So this week, Sydney Bergman at Hardball Times analyzed 860 umpire ejections of 482 unique players from 2008 to 2017 and found that, quote, even when controlling for other factors, umpires eject non-white players disproportionately compared to those players' representation in Major League Baseball. Okay, so Bergman's work is really thorough. 
I didn't understand all of it. And it's explained in detail, including a discussion of method, looking into a series of additional factors outside of race- racism that could have led to umpires ejecting proportionally more non-white players than white players, and then lots of beautiful bar graphs. If you're interested in this, I highly recommend you actually check out the piece for yourself. We've talked about it multiple times on this program, but baseball, like all parts of American society, has racism baked right into it. It's really no surprise that it would play a role in who is considered disruptive or a rule breaker worthy of ejection from baseball games. As Bergman writes in the conclusion of the piece, quote, how a game steeped in traditions largely dictated by white players and officials responds to its increasingly non-white player population will likely determine its future relevance, especially with what MLB hopes will be an increasingly diverse audience. Bergman continues, quote, as long as the rules of the game require umpires judgment for both interpretation of player action and enforcement of the rules of play, we should interrogate the role of biases that underpin those judgments to ensure a fair game for everyone. Hear, hear. Burn this reality about ejections in baseball and advocate for change. Burn. 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 Lindsay, throw it on. Yeah, so mine builds off of Jess's. This comes from my colleague, Josh Israel at Think Progress. He began to look into who funded a shockingly racist radio ad from a super PAC that called itself Black Americans for the President's Agenda. This ad went viral on Thursday evening. The spots which run on radio stations that are popular with Black voters in Arkansas and Mississippi say that Black women must back Republican French Hill and Republican Josh Hawley, who were congressional candidates in Arkansas and Missouri, because they say that if Democrats accuse Brett Kavanaugh of sexual assault now, then basically Democrats will, the word is lynch, Black men and boys, and Black men and boys will be subjected to race verdicts, life sentences, and lynchings. No, we don't want to discount the fact that there has been a very, very racial <laughs> component of white women crying rape and black men being abused for it. But to make this a partisan issue to play off of partisan politics in this way, to use an ad that is directly targeted to black women and using the word lynching. And if you listen to it, it's very explicitly racist. So anyways, they dug into who led this super PAC and found out that one of the contributors was GOB megadonor and billionaire Charles B. Johnson, who was also the principal owner of the San Francisco Giants baseball team. So we would just like to burn that. I am so sick of owners telling players they have to stick to sports and then going and donating to crap like this. And baseball, you cannot continue to say that you want to be a diverse audience when this is what's going on among the people at the helm of your sport. This is disgusting. Burn. Burn. My burn for this week takes a dark turn, but sometimes on this show we have to. Marbella Ibarra, the beloved coach and promoter of women's football in northern Mexico, was found dead this week, wrapped up in a blanket, and probably beaten to death after three weeks of being kidnapped. She was also an attorney in the Oficina del Ministerio Público in Tijuana, and It is devastating for the women's soccer community. She is founder and was head coach of the women's club, Xolas de Tijuana. And in that particular part of Mexico, it's so important, these initiatives that people like Ibarra, but we're talking about her, did with girls and young women because we know what it means for them to take public space in a healthy way, to feel confident in their bodies, and to feel strong because this is a part of Mexico that for the last 25 years has had sharp increases in violence against women and girls. And so this week, it feels, I don't know where to put this. I I didn't know whether to put Ibarra in the Badass Women of the Week or the burn pile. It all feels small in comparison to the tragedy. But I want to mention her on this show because she's one of the thousands of grassroots activists that dedicated her life to making the world a better place for women through sport. And the impunity, you know, less than two out of every 100 femicides being investigated in Mexico results in sentencing. Less than two out of every 100, so that's 1.6%. 
So it's one of the one of the least punitive states if you want to hurt women. And it's a great tragedy. So I want to throw the impunity on the burn pile and just have a moment of remembrance for Marbella Ibarra and burn everything that has to do with hurting her. Burn. burn. Sad burn. And now on to a happier story. Badass women this week. We are going to celebrate some of the accomplishments of women in sport around the world. Honorable mention goes to Team Canada and Team USA, who qualified for the Women's World Cup this week. Um, They'll be playing in France. And we have to mention, I'm sorry, Shireen, you're not here, that Team USA did beat Canada. (laughs) Other honorable mention goes to Olympic champion snowboarder Chloe Kim, who tweeted the video showing her landing a frontside double cork 1080 on a half pipe in Switzerland. That even sounds badass just to say. A trick no female snowboarder is believed to have landed before. Also, Angebert, who became the first Tunisian to ever make a WTA final at the Kremlin Cup last week. She had an impressive run, beating U.S. Open champion Sloane Stevens along the way and is now ranked 63 in the world, making her the highest ranked woman ever from an Arabic country. Also, congratulations to Daria Kasekina, who defeated Ons in the final to win the tournament in Moscow. And speaking of tennis, another honorable mention goes to all the women in singles and doubles competing in the WTA championships in Singapore this week, featuring the top eight singles players and doubles teams in the world. And now, can I get a drum roll? Guppy, guppy. (laughs) Badass women of the week goes to Team Jamaica, the reggae girls, who beat beat Panama in a penalty shootout to become the first Caribbean nation to qualify for a FIFA Women's World Cup. We have interviewed players, and just to put it out there, we're going to also have an interview with Nicole McClure from the reggae girls. Much congratulations. We will be watching you at Burn It All Down. In dark times, we like to talk about what is keeping us afloat. Jessica, what's good in your world this week? Yeah, so anyone who knows me even a little bit knows that I love romance novels. And so if anyone's listening who is looking for a good one right now, I've read two recently, which like bless romance authors. Seriously, if you like historicals, The Duke I Tempted by Scarlett Peckham was spectacular. And then if you like contemporaries, Rafe by Rebecca Weatherspoon was so good. So good. And then I also wanted to mention, I won't be on the show next week. So I'm very excited because every year for the last few years, my family has dressed up for Halloween in like a group costume. And so all of our costumes came this week. And my son is going to be David S. Pumpkins from the SNL skit with Tom Hanks. And uh, Aaron and I will be the skeleton B-boys who dance next to David S. Pumpkins. So I'm really, really excited about this. That is so cute. (laughs) Lynn's? (laughs) <laughs> I'm having a hard time this week. <laughs> That's what it is. You know what? I'm, I'm, you know what I'm excited about? Women's NCAA basketball is coming. College basketball starting soon. I'm excited about that. I'm exciting that the NBA is back. I just love basketball. I've missed it since the WNBA season ended. And I'm also excited because Kobe Bryant got kicked off of a panel at an animation film conference because he's a rapist. So that was really cool. So these women started a petition, women in the animation community, and were like, this isn't okay that he's on this panel. And he actually got kicked off of it. And it just like, you just never see that happen. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right. Accountability. Nobody's, <laughs> nobody seems to care. So I got so excited that like, you know, this small community, I mean, you know, their petition was small only got a few hundred signatures but it was enough to make people listen so that was really exciting it is good to see accountability for rapists that's i'm saying that in full seriousness the small victories well my what's good in this week is not not altogether surprising because it's kind of what's good in my whole month and that's halloween and i went to my first halloween party last night of this season and i was a vampire which i've never been it was really exciting and i actually glued the teeth on so mm-hmm. my teeth look great. So you're still so <laughs> yeah. you're still wearing them, is what you're saying? <laughs> They're still there. And I went with my brother and I made a really corny joke all night that we were blood relatives. 
because he was a vampire too. <laughs> That's incredible. Thank you for laughing. That's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> he's, he's much cooler than I am. And so I got to shop around and kind of like, you know, just it just sort of like bask in, in his coolness and I could be a middle-aged mom vampire. And I took pictures in a cemetery locally. And so I made my kids go to the graveyard. And what? This is so extra. <laughs> oh my God. I'm so extra for Halloween. I'm so extra. So I made them go to a, a cemetery and pose next to it's an early 19th century graveyard. So the people, it's not like mean. Like, like no family members are alive anymore. Like, I swear. These are like everybody died in like 1809. Okay. So no disrespect for the dead. But I made them pose in front of tombstones. <laughs> So that's what's good in my world is a whole lot of Halloween. So, Brenda, my jaw is literally <laughs> on the table because right you now. feel sorry for me I, that this is my life or what? I just like you just literally I, learned. I something. think I've never gotten that into Halloween, <laughs> and I am amazed. I don't understand this. Like it's for different atheists, for me. It's our only holiday, really. I mean, okay, I mean, think fair. about it. I don't want to compare it to something like Christmas or Passover because that means a lot to a lot of people. But in a serious and meaningful way, we don't have many holy holidays as atheists. So this is it. It's Halloween. It's all we got. <laughs> but you're not going to make me feel bad for mocking you with all that. Absolutely stuff, not. So no, <laughs> absolutely not. It's, it's all ironic. It's ton- tongue in cheek, okay. right? Okay. Before we end, I would like to thank our patrons for their generous support and to remind our new flamethrowers about our Patreon campaign. You can pledge a certain amount monthly, as low as $2 and as high as you want, to become an official patron of the podcast. And in exchange, you'll get access to special rewards, segments, things like that. So far, we've been able to solidify funding for proper editing and transcripts, but we're hoping to do more and to reach more people and to do what we do better. That's it for this week and burn it all down. On behalf of Jessica Luther and Lindsay Gibbs, we hope you have a wonderful week. And we'd like to remind you that Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but can also be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We do appreciate your reviews and feedback. Please subscribe and rate and let us know what we did well and how we can improve. You will find us at Facebook at Burn It All Down, on Twitter at Burn It All Down Pod or on Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod. You can email us at Burn It All Down Pod at gmail.com. Check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com, where you can find previous episodes, transcripts, which are like carefully and lovingly done by Jessica Luther, and a link to that Patreon that I was talking about. We would appreciate any sort of feedback that you have and ratings for our show. It helps us do the work that we love to do and keep burning what needs to be burned. See you next week. Vamos.